common expression in our generation is the allusion to a, a learning curve. You've probably used that phrase yourself. It's a reference to certain times in uh, your life when life gets a little more difficult because there is a quick uh, new thing thrust upon you. Maybe it's a new job with its learning curve. You have an awful lot to learn in a short period of time until things eventually settle down. Uh, the concept of the learning curve was introduced in 1938 by an engineer who used it as a way to estimate the cost and efforts of airplane assembly. His theory of a learning curve was simply this. The more you repeat a series of operations, the less time and effort will be expended in order to achieve the result. Let me put that in language I understand. The first time you do something, it's harder than the fifth time you do it, right? It's true. Do you remember the first time you swung a golf club? You wish that day had never happened, right? You've been cursed ever since. I I remember my roommate in college coming in. He'd gone to a driving range, and he was talking about this this sport and uh, how tough it was to hit a golf ball. And I said, nah, it can't be that hard. And he said, yeah, it is. I said, no, it isn't. And he said, well, come with me. And he took me out to the front uh, lawn of the dormitory where we were living. And he stood me there on the front lawn with his driver. And he said, okay, now here's how you hold the club. And he had me twist my fingers all around this slender handle. And he said, now here's how you stand. And, and I felt like I was playing twister. And he said, now, and he put a ripe, big ripe orange on the ground. And he said, now hit that orange And I said, just hit, you're going to ruin that orange. You won't be able to eat it. He said, it'll be fine. Go ahead and hit it. (laughs) And so I took a mighty swing and and, uh, I swung again and again. He said, keep your head down. Like, what good would that do? I kept my head down and swung again and again. And that orange began to mock me, make faces at me until finally I hit it. Just, just creamed it only because I swung like this. That's how come. <laughs> you remember the learning curve of driving? Maybe your experience was like mine. I don't know. I learned on a Volkswagen Bug. Baby blue with four on the floor. It was a great vehicle. My parents let me practice out in front of the house. I could uh, go forward and I'd learn to go backward and you get that shift going and you got to put it in and give it a little gas and let the clutch off and a little more gas and then put it in the oven first and then you put the clutch in again and let off the gas and and on and on. And I, I, you know, nobody got hurt. Uh, Neighbors stayed indoors when they saw me go out there with a Volkswagen. But I remember showing up for driver's ed and I could not believe it. We could choose one of two cars, a little Buick, or a Volkswagen. I thought, man, is this good or what? I hopped in the front seat with a driving instructor and slammed the thing in the first gear. We took off without a hit, shifted it in the second gear, and all of a sudden the car screeched to a halt. My instructor had brakes on his side of the car. And he looked over at me and he said, son, we're not here to race, we're here to learn took all the fun out of it. What about the learning curve of marriage? (laughs) 
But you had premarital counseling, four sessions in a notebook, all the charts and everything, right? What more is there to learn? The learning curve of marriage soon became apparent. In fact, after the wedding was over, one author said it this way, marriage is like getting on a plane heading for the Bahamas. You've got all your shorts and Hawaiian shirts packed along with plenty of sunscreen and even a snorkel and fins. The plane lands and you discover you're at the North Pole. Instead of a breeze, it's a blizzard. You need a fur coat, not a swimsuit. You need skis instead of fins and a snorkel. But it's too late. You've discovered you've packed all the wrong stuff. Maybe for you, you are buried in diapers. There's a learning curve. Nothing quite like it when you arrive home from the hospital with a newborn baby. It's a whirlwind of activity, and the only thing missing in the whirlwind is sleep, right? Sleep has left you. But there's nothing quite like moments along that learning curve when you finally have the baby all bathed and and lotioned up, and they've had their bedtime bottle you've laced with NyQuil. No, just kidding, but you've got that (laughs) bottle in them. And they're snuggled into their Winnie the Pooh pajamas with their little footies and and they are, they're clothed and, and for the moment in their right mind, so it seems, and they eventually are asleep and nobody breathes. The baby is asleep and you pray, please God, let it be a deep, deep sleep, like the sleep of hibernation. <laughs> let him sleep for three months. Maybe for you, the learning curve is a major move. Maybe it's forced retirement or maybe a new job. Maybe your freshman year. There is at least one learning curve that occurs to all of us. Whether you're old or young, married or single, children or no children, employed or unemployed, rich or poor. You never know when you're going to be put on this steep curve that requires a tremendous amount of learning. And you're never quite fully prepared. And when you're in it, you've realized you you packed all the wrong stuff. David wrote, It was good that I was afflicted, that I might learn of your statutes. Psalm 1971. There's a, there's a sharp incline of alertness and even desperation to learn from God whenever you're in the classroom of affliction. The writer of Hebrews tells us that even Jesus Christ, though fully God, yet fully man, and as man learned, he learned obedience through the things he what? He suffered, Hebrews 5.8. If affliction introduces the believer to a learning curve, and it does, then Job has been writing one for several months, in fact, maybe as long as a year or two. By now, in our study, you are ready for the hush of heaven to be broken by the voice of God. You know it's coming. Maybe you've read the book. It's just around the corner. But before God speaks, and after Job has said his final words, appealing directly to heaven, There's a brand new voice heard out on the ash heap. Beginning with verse 
1 of chapter 32, a young man by the name of Elihu steps forward to deliver a speech. It's going to take the next six chapters of this book, and we're going we're gonna to race through them all. Elihu will actually introduce some brand new concepts that are closer to the truth than the council of Eliphaz and Bildad and, and Zophar. In fact, Elihu will introduce the idea that, that God might have sent Job this suffering, not because he's sinned, but to keep him from sinning. That had never been bantered around the town dump before until now. Job, perhaps God is protecting you from greater sin by putting you on this learning curve called affliction and suffering. By the way, that is exactly the testimony of the Apostle Paul who wrote, because of the amazing greatness of the revelations given to me, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh a messenger of Satan to torment me. Why, Paul? To keep me from exalting myself. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 and 8. In other words, suffering kept Paul spiritually minded. Elihu suggests this possibility to Job, which would have been tremendously encouraging. Fresh news. In fact, closer to the truth. Elihu will also suggest another new concept, and that is that suffering not only keeps a person from sin, it it keeps them learning the ways of God. There is this learning curve that affliction encourages and promotes. And so he begins to speak, and and it's kind of long-winded. In fact, in chapter 32, all he does is tell Job for that whole chapter that he's going to speak. He just, he just introduces it. <laughs> and he'll speak for six chapters. It reminds me of the story I read not too long ago when he was president. Ronald Reagan loved to tell the story of, of the young country boy who just finished his Bible education and, and he was going to go preach his first sermon. And when he arrived at, at uh, the church to preach, he walked in into his great disappointment. There was only one person in the in the little audience, it was, it was one rancher present. Church was empty except for that one man. The young preacher walked back there. He was sitting about halfway back, shook his hand and said, what do you think I ought to do? The old rancher said, well, I don't rightly know, son. I'm just a cowpoke. But if I went out in my field and found only one steer, I'd feed it. That's all the young preacher needed. He got up in the pulpit and delivered a sermon and went on and on and on and on and on and on. Well, over an hour later, he ended his marathon message, walked back to the rancher and said, well, what'd you think? Old Callahan replied, well, I don't rightly know, son, but I'll tell you this. If I went out in my field and found only one steer, I wouldn't feed him the whole load. (laughs) Well, I'm going to give you the whole load, okay? So buckle up. Now, before we we jump to chapter 33, as Elihu finishes, you'll notice back in the first few verses of chapter 32 that he does tell Job he's angry. 
He admits that he's angry. And you think, oh no, not another one of these guys. Job has had that. But if you look at verse 2, you discover his anger burned against Job because he justified himself before God. Job was leaning toward self-righteousness. But he was also, verse 3, angry with Job's friends. It says, and his anger burned against his three friends because they had found the answer, yet they had they'd not found the answer, or they had yet condemned Job without evidence, is what he means. He's angry. He's watched. He's listened. And these men, without any objective evidence, have determined that Job's sufferings were the result of, of great sin. Aristotle wrote that righteous anger, which Elihu demonstrates, I believe, for the most part, is to be angry with the right person, to the right extent, at the right time, with the right motive, and for the right reason. It's not easy to do, and not everyone can do it. Now, in order for you, as we go through these chapters, to, to have some pegs of truth to hang your cowboy hats on, let me, give you, let me give you four major points of Elihu's counsel. Here's the first one. Even when life is confusing, God is still communicating. God is speaking, Job, not like you want, not through channels you might have expected, but he's He's speaking. He says here in verse uh, 13 of chapter 33, Why do you complain against God that he does not give an account of all his doings? Indeed, God speaks once or twice. No one notices it. And then he says the first way is in a dream, a vision of the night, when sound sleep falls on men when they slumber in their beds. Then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. Now in Job's era, before the Bible was completed or perhaps even begun, if Job's book is indeed, as I believe, the first book ever compiled and edited by Moses, as many Bible scholars believe, God spoke through dreams. For us today, God does not deliver revelation through dreams. He's already revealed his word through the prophets and apostles who compose the book you're holding in your lap. Under the superintending uh, power of the Spirit of God. I fear that today our evangelical world is so uninterested with the Word of God, they're now attempting to organize and, and sell ways for you to interpret your dreams and visions and all sorts of confusion and chaos is the result. You can go to the Christian bookstore even today and buy a manual on how to interpret your dreams. Listen, finding some hidden spiritual truth in a dream opens the door to subjective departure from the truth of God's word. And so when you read a text like this, remember Job lived at the outset of the revelation of God and God would speak to him in, in this way. That's why even the prophet Isaiah challenged his people to stick with the law and the testimony. To the law, he said, to the testimony, what God has written through his servants. If men speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Isaiah 8, verse 20. Today, dreams are not new revelation from God. 
At best, they would be nothing more than the subconscious mind at work and those thoughts which certainly might be troubling us or we've been thinking about or impressed by can come to us when we're asleep in the form of a dream. If they distract us from the truth of God's revealed word, they are to be discarded. I caution you to to try to find some kind of deep meaning or truth. Go to the word of God. In fact, if a dream merely reinforces what God's word has already said, you're not following the dream. You're following God's word, right? I remember in my own life being troubled about the rapture. I was worried, filled with fear. I was 17 years old and going to hell. And I knew it. I was in church every Sunday. My parents are missionaries, but I was a hypocrite. There was no evidence of God's work in my heart. There was no hunger for the word of God, no desire to live for God. And though I kept any outward expression of rebellion close to my vest, my heart was far from God, and I was frankly terrified of going to hell. And I can remember having a dream that I was in hell. Obviously, the work of my own mind troubled me even in my dreams, but I can remember it was vivid and it was real. And I awoke that night covered with sweat, laying there in my bed, knowing that I needed to give my life to Christ. And I slipped out of my bed and onto my knees and surrendered my life, everything I was, and would be to Christ. Now, my dream didn't add anything to the Word of God. It didn't contradict what God's Word had already said. It didn't take anything away. It reinforced the truth that was rolling around in my mind. But the troubling thing to me, and that's why I wanted to spend a few moments on this, is that people are going outside the Word of God They're delving into their dreams to find answers, direction, decision for their lives. And they're getting getting involved in all sorts of strange diversions from the truth. We have been told that the content of the Word of God is sufficient to equip us for every aspect of life. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Every good work. But for Job, in this era, God could and evidently was revealing himself through dreams, and he and others were ignoring them. Secondly, Elihu reminded Job that God was speaking through suffering. In verse 19 of chapter 33, Job is told that mankind is chastened, he's disciplined, he's instructed with pain on his bed. Have you ever been there? As a believer growing in Christ, Undoubtedly you have. When, when physical affliction occurs and suffering and pain, those times cause you to reflect upon where you stand with God. Lord, what are you teaching me? Why do I have to be here in bed rather than at work or at school? And the only, only direction you can look is up. C.S. Lewis wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts to us in our pain. Pain, Lewis wrote, is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world 
God has been speaking to Job through dreams and pain. Finally, he speaks through others. Verse 32, through an angel. You could broadly translate that word messenger, which I believe he refers to here. He says in verse 23, to remind a man what is right for him. And he assumes that everybody has the opportunity, which would lead me to then believe that he's speaking to messengers of truth. Job, even when your life has been most confusing, God has indeed been communicating. You aren't listening. Secondly, even when life seems unfair, God is never unjust. Go to chapter 34 and he quotes Job back to himself. You ever had somebody challenge you and they quote you with your own words? It's irritating, isn't it? But effective. So he does the same thing here. He said, Job, you said it profits me nothing when, when, when a person is pleased with God. In other words, life is unfair. God is rewarding the wrong man. I have been walking with God and God is evidently unjust. Elihu will simply repeat the truth that God always does what is right, even when we don't see it. Look at verse 10 of chapter 34. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to do wrong. For he pays a man according to his work and makes him find it according to his way. Surely God will not act wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Throughout this chapter, ladies and gentlemen, Elihu will defend the character and nature of God. When you're discouraged and life seems unfair, the best thing a counselor can do is what Elihu did. Defend the character of God and remind you that God is always right, even when he chooses not to explain his ways. Elihu describes the, the facts about God. In verse 11, he is a just rewarder. Verse 13, he is a sovereign authority. Verse 14 to 15, he is a sustainer, independent sustainer of life. Verses 16 to 20, he is the impartial ruler. He just goes down the list rehearsing the great attributes of God. And I don't know about you, but I have found in times of suffering, the greatest thing to have rehearsed to me is the attributes of God. So that God becomes great and I become small. Notice verse 19 of chapter 34. Who that is God. He shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich above the poor, for they are all the work of his hands In other words, we play favorites, God doesn't. We show partiality, God never has. We skewer the scales of justice with high-paid lawyers. God judges one and all with the same scales of perfect justice and perfect holiness and perfect judgment. He just hasn't unrolled those scales now. Like he will when the books will be opened and all the world will stand before him. Job, even if life seems unfair, God is never unjust. Oh, yeah? Well, it's possible for somebody to be just 
and unkind. It's as if Elihu anticipated that kind of response from Job's heart, and so he moves to his third major point. Here it is. Even when life seems hard, God is not heartless. God is not distant when we suffer. In fact, one of those precious texts that you've probably heard before arises from the ash heap of Job's suffering here. This time, not from Job's lips, but from the lips of Elihu as he describes God as the one in verse 10 of chapter 35 who gives us songs in the night. You ought to underline that and circle it and put a star by it. Elihu says, further in verse 11, God makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens. He teaches us more than he ever teaches an animal in the field. Above all, Job, don't forget, God gives songs in the night. Listen, there's quite a difference between whistling in the dark and singing in the dark, isn't there? You know, I come over here sometimes late at night to get a book, pick up something. The place is dark. This place is big. This place is spooky. (laughs) When you're not here, it's spooky. And I'll whistle all the way up through the elevator. It's not courage. It's not bravery. It's not trust in the sovereignty of God, I am afraid. But to be in a dark place and all alone, suffering whatever suffering brings, and begin to sing praise to God, that is the courage of faith. That's Paul and Silas singing in Acts 16 in the jail cell. That's Jesus Christ in the upper room, moments away from Gethsemane. The text says, and after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. How do you sing before Gethsemane and the cross? It's one thing to sing in the sunshine. It's another thing to sing in the nighttime. One of the wonderful reasons and motives behind the gathering of the assembly to sing is that we declare our faith and maybe for you to sing those lyrics, to recommit your trust in the shepherd was a demonstration of courageous faith. You are singing today songs in the night. Johnny Erickson Tata and John MacArthur collaborated together in a series of books I have in my library on hymn histories and the theology behind the texts of these great hymns of the church. For those of you who don't know, maybe you're newer to the faith, Johnny uh, broke her neck in a diving accident and has now for several decades served Christ through a variety of ministries, although paralyzed from the neck down. Her pastor, John MacArthur, worked with her on a series of books that I've enjoyed reading from time to time. In one particular chapter, the story wasn't, however, about Johnny's suffering, but it was about singing a song in the night. and It was about the homegoing of the mother of James Dobson. Let me read a paragraph or two. 
In a few minutes, we were sitting on the edge of Myrtle Dobson's bed. Suffering from Parkinson's disease, which rendered her confused, she was unable to speak more than a word or two at a time. Dr. Dobson spoke kindly to his mother, reminding her who we all were, even though we had known her very well. She just nodded and smiled. After a few minutes of small talk, Bobby, one of the guests, spoke up. Why don't we sing? Myrtle loves to sing. And so we did. O worship the King, all glorious above. O gratefully sing his power and his love. Our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. For the first few lines of the hymn, she silently smiled back at us. Could she understand? Was she listening? We really couldn't tell. But as we sang the final verse, her mouth began to form the words, and then she joined in with each unforgettable phrase. What was even more amazing than Myrtle's remembering the lyrics was the fact that she sang a perfect alto line. The music may not have landed a recording contract, but it was good enough to fill our hearts with enough gratitude and praise to last a lifetime. Frail children of dust and feeble as frail, in thee do we trust nor find thee to fail. Your mercies, how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. Dr. Dobson wept almost uncontrollably at the familiar sound of his mother singing this great melody of faith with her alto voice. This hymn included some of the most powerful four-worded summaries of the character of the sovereign God ever recorded. Maker, defender, redeemer, friend. Think of it. Maker, he created us. Defender, the forces of evil melt at the sound of his voice. Redeemer, the death of his own son was not too high a ransom to pay. Friend, friend, a woman too weak to sit without help had someone reassuring her at that moment of his everlasting presence. This was their song in the night. Perhaps what silences our singing in the nighttime is that we refuse to travel up the learning curve. It's too fast. It's too much. It's too hard. But this learning curve of suffering deepens the depth of our faith James chapter 1 verse 3 tells us the testing of our faith produces endurance, greater faith. It teaches us about the character of God. The learning curve of suffering develops in us a longing for the things of God. It teaches us to desire the glorification of our bodies. Paul wrote to the Romans, we long, we groan for the redemption of our bodies. It causes us to yearn, to long for the coming kingdom of Christ when all is made right. It makes us long for heaven. 
It elevates our thinking from the the trivialities of this temporary world to the glory of our maker, defender, redeemer, friend. What seems heartless of God is actually God's heart helping us onward and upward. No wonder Martin Luther, the reformer, would say, I have found affliction to be one of my best schoolmasters. Listen, Job, Elihu counsels, even when life is confusing, God is still communicating. Even when life seems unfair, God is never unjust. Even when life seems hard, God is not heartless. Finally, this major point where most who study the speech of Elihu believe that he ended incredibly well. Even when life becomes unsettled, God has not been unseated. In the last section of his speech, Elihu will declare two things. The power of God over sinners and the power of God over seasons. Earlier in chapter 36, Elihu has declared that the terrible end of of sinners, those who refuse to follow after God. Verse 12, those who do not listen to God. They die without knowledge. Verse 17, Elihu says, listen, Job, judgment and justice will take hold of you if you, like them, scoff at the wrath of God. Verse 18, those sinners who let riches keep them from considering their end. Verse 19, God will be exalted in his power over all who challenge his authority, verses 22 and 23. This is the power of God over sinners. They think they have autonomy. They are not autonomous. They believe they are unaccountable. They are accountable. God rules over all the kingdoms of the earth. Number two, Elihu also reminds Job of God's power over seasons. I found Warren Wiersbe's outline in his commentary intriguing as he highlighted the weather conditions of the four seasons here in this remaining part of Elihu's speech as further proof of God's sovereign and creative control. In verse 27 of chapter 36, all the way down to verse 5, I have taken my pencil and I've marked in the margin just a just a line. Verse 27 of chapter 36 down through verse 5 of chapter 37. You have the weather conditions of autumn. Chapter 37 verse 6 through verse 10. You have the weather conditions of winter. Verse 11 down through verse 13 reveals the weather of spring with its rain showers. Then in verses 14 all the way down to verse 20, the weather conditions of the season of summer, when the heat of the sun, in verse 17, he says, heats up your clothing and the sky seems like a brass mirror. Nothing's moving, not even a whisper of a breeze. Now, if you went through this, On your own, and you simply listed Elihu's declarations of God's control, 
in chapters 36 and 37, not only over sinners, but the seasons, the weather conditions of our planet. You find him referring to God's control over evaporation and rain and clouds and thunder and lightning and flooding. All these, and it kind of takes you back to chapter 1, you remember? All these elements of nature are not haphazard. They are secondary effects that bring about God's primary purpose in life. Which is the ultimate and only true comfort to Job. And this must have been very reassuring to hear him say it, for for Job to hear these words. Why? His children died in a tornado. That God had a purpose that he controls even the conditions of the fallen planet to, to bring about his primary purpose in life, even though we don't understand. And, and, and God's purpose and his purposes are never trumped, not even by the devil himself, who might stir things up. Listen, we have a family in our church, had their beautiful home in Cary, struck by lightning while they were away. The lightning bolt fried the alarm system, which then meant that no fire alarm sounded or signal sent out. Their home and everything in it burned to the ground. I went over there and stood in the front yard the next day as a couple of firemen were sitting there in the side yard really to do nothing than guard the property. Even though it was the next day, little flickers of flame were eroding away at what was left of the structure. It was an eerie sight to see the columns of the front porch standing and fireplaces at both ends of the house and everything in the middle, a pile of ash. Listen, there's more to this. The lightning had struck their home while they were in the hospital with their teenage daughter, who was in critical condition with an infection. In fact, she had just come out of ICU when they got the news that their home was on fire and there was nothing they could do. A few days later, I told them, of all things, our book was being delivered that same week in the first section on Job, and I had entitled the book, When Lightning Strikes. (laughs) The picture is a bolt of lightning coming down from the sky. I told them, I said, if I'd only known, I'd have dedicated the book to you. They laughed. and You know, I was writing about it, and they were living it. They told me, interestingly enough, they said, Stephen, we want you to understand, we're not Job. We still have our daughter, and we have our health. And they expressed to me how they were trusting God and his purpose for their lives in spite of everything that was happening around them. Talk about a learning curve. When life is unsettled, God has not been unseated. So Job, Elihu intimates, stay the course, and and so should you, my friend. So should I. Is God silent? No, the question is where is he communicating right now that you might be ignoring or overlooking or resisting or missing? Is life unfair? Will you remind yourself that God is never unjust and he will make everything right? Not always settling the score on this planet, but he shall. One day. Is life hard? God is not heartless. 
when it is. In fact, there's a song for you in the night. The question is not, Lord, do you have a song for me? The question is, Lord, I'm willing to sing. What song do you have for me to begin singing? Is life unsettled? He is still enthroned. Like the widow that I used to greet every Sunday morning with, and how are you doing today? She would always respond, he is still on the throne. He is still on the throne. Maybe that's all you needed to hear today. That's enough. You didn't need the whole load. You just needed that. God is still enthroned. His is the kingdom forever and even now. He is seated. He is seated upon the pinnacle of his universe, which he created, where he reigns absolutely supreme. And we, we are, we are frail children of dust and feeble as frail. How oh, but in thee do we trust nor find thee to fail. Your mercies, how tender, how firm to the end. Our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. Father, thank you. Thank you for allowing us to hear wise counsel. Thank you for the reminder that we are dust and thou art God. Thank you for the promises that even though we are feeble as frail, you have brought us to life in your Son. We are seated with you even now in the heavenlies. Our position is secure. Your work is ongoing in our lives, and we can trust you today. You are our maker. You are our defender. You are our redeemer. You are our friend. Maybe, my friend, that's the song that you need to begin singing in the middle of your night when the speed of this learning curve is taking your breath away and you can't see around the corner. You can't see through the mist and darkness of uncertainty. Or maybe some other hymn you've heard today where you re-enlist fully, submissively to the shepherd. Maybe you don't know Christ personally. You have been brought from death to life. You still think there's something in you strong enough to win heaven, something good enough in you to earn grace. No, grace is given to the undeserving. Salvation is given to those who admit they're sinners. Join us 
We are feeble as frail people, but we have come to life and we belong to our sovereign, strong Lord. If you know enough of the gospel, you can receive him right where you sit. If you will turn your heart to him, we'd love for you to settle it once and for all. Father, thank you for the privilege of the assembly and the worship together that infuses in us new courage to do more than whistle in the dark, but to sing in the night. And we do sing praise, for you are praiseworthy in Jesus' name. And everyone said, stand with me and let's sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Ah.